Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise be to God. Whether you're coming to our little house church here in McKinney, Texas, or you're visiting us online, God sees that you are here today and you're taking time out of your private day, out of your own personal day, which God gave you and you and you to do whatever you wanted to do. Yet you find yourself here, yet you find yourself tuning in online and Praise be to God, and you know God sees that, and He sees that you've made Him important to you at this moment right now. If this is your first time, listen to me. Hello, I'm Pastor Ed. I come to you from McKinney, Texas, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days, and this is our weekly broadcast of Truth from God's Word. Anyway, I always start with a word of prayer, so if you guys would join me, please, because I'm not your teacher. I just read from the Word of God, and God gives me the words to say, and... <laughs> Praise be to God, you know, he's got to teach us what to say because I don't know. So, Lord, thank you for bringing us here, Lord God. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord God, for all that you do for us, Lord God. Thank you that you love us and that you love us, that you loved us, Lord, with an everlasting love, Lord God in heaven. Thank you, Lord God, that you, you take care of those that are yours, Lord God, with an everlasting taking care of, Lord God. And, and that as you've shown me before, Lord God, you don't just take care of us now, Lord, you take care of us for all eternity as well, too. You handle every single problem that we've ever had, and you'll handle the problem of death as well, too, Lord God. For death, Lord, the Bible says it's, it's man's greatest enemy. Lord God, we thank you for all that you do for us and your great love and your great mercy and your great sacrifice, Lord God. And we just uh, ask that you help us understand your word today. And Lord, I pray that we would not just hear your word today, Lord God, and, and just hear it as just something else that we hear today, Lord. I pray that your holy word would impact us today, Lord God, that your holy word would, would, uh, would get down deep into our souls, Lord God, and make changes, Lord God, please <laughs> help us, help us, God, help us, help us to hear and respond today, Lord God, to what your word has to say to us today. For Lord, always your word, Lord, should always be changing us, Lord God. We, it should never leave us the same. For our human nature is completely opposite of the nature of yours. And so, Lord God, whenever we hear your words, Lord, your words are always opposite of what we feel like doing or what we think is right to do, Lord God, because we have such a human flawed nature. So, Lord, help us to hear your word and, and make, make true changes, Lord God, the changes that are for you and for the betterment of your kingdom and us following you. We love you and we praise you and we thank you, Lord God. And we ask these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. <laughs> Amen. So you can turn your Bibles now to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, for that's where we'll be today. But I won't read them and teach that section until after I say a few words and give a quick recap of last of the last half of Acts 5 and our last normal sermon, which would be Gamaliel's advice from Acts chapter 4, or Acts chapter 5, excuse me, the very end of Acts chapter 5. So a month ago now, if you can believe it, we had our last normal sermon. Wow, I can't believe it's been that long. We had a sermon last week, but it was kind of just a, a fill-in sermon. Normally I teach verse by verse, book by book of the Bible, and I don't veer off unless it's a special holy day like Christmas or you know, Resurrection Day, but uh, last Sunday was kind of a fill-in Sunday uh, sermon because we had some we had some tragedy here in our little house church. Uh, in case you didn't hear, uh, the little break in our action from Gospel Saving Church was a difficult time with my father who fell, spent some awful time in the hospital, uh, sadly couldn't recover, and unfortunately for us, but good for him, fortunately for him, he got to go home to be with the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, the King of all creation. So 
that was our break. That was our, but now we're back. We're back to normal. So today, getting back to our normal action, I will start off with a very quick recap of the last half of Acts chapter 5 and our last normal message, Gamaliel's advice from that, also that same section. Now remember Acts 5, starting about halfway, religious leaders attack the apostles. They arrest them. They put them in prison, all for preaching Jesus Christ and winning many souls, that's what the scripture says, to God's kingdom, and doing also many signs and wonders and miracles. The apostles escape because God let them out of prison. The religious leaders have them brought back, put them on trial for the evils, quote-unquote, yeah, what a joke, of preaching Jesus Christ and uh, doing many miracles, right? What a, what a sickening joke. That's not evil at all. The apostles stand up for themselves and they answer them back. Words from the Holy Spirit, just cutting them to the heart with the things that they were saying. The religious leaders don't like the apostles' answers and they're about to kill them. Then Gamaliel, a super religious leader whom every other religious leader highly respected, basically he spoke up and they shut up, stands up and he actually gives some advice that actually protects them as he was also their enemy, yet he did, was trying to be careful and gave some advice that actually delivered them, for he was God's deliverance. And so instead of them killing them, he, they end up just beating them and warning them, a warning which they did not listen to, to stop preaching Jesus Christ. Again, they did not listen to this warning. They leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They go right back to preaching Jesus Christ, right in the face of the religious leaders, right in the temple, for that's where they were having church at those days. And um, they did not listen, but not only did, not, did they not listen, they also just, yeah, you said stop preaching. Well, we can't do that. And you know what? In fact, we're going to go right back and right in your face and we're going to do it. And they didn't do anything about it because, of course, it was God's divine church. And there you go. They leave rejoicing, being counted worthy to suffer for his name again. Uh, and I will say these last things about my last message from Acts 5, this Gamaliel's advice. You see, God used Gamaliel to deliver the apostles from the hands of the religious leaders, but he could have used anything. And the reason why he did, though, or he didn't just use that is it wasn't his time for them to come to him. Looking at this example with Gamaliel and then with my dad, when it's God's time for your ticket to be punched, then it is. And when it's not, well, it's just not. And in Acts 5, it was not God's time for the apostles to come to be with him uh, while it was for my father. God did have a time for the apostles to come to him. Stephen and James would be shortly. James were gonna, or Stephen, we're going to read about him. He was the first disciple martyr. And then James was the first apostle martyr within the next few chapters. And then within some of them were 30 years, and some were 10, and some were 20. But we, they all had a time, as we will all have a time. But none of them was the time, their time that day. None of them. Knowing this, there's one thing that's for sure in this life. There's one appointment that no one will miss, and that's death. You'll miss your appointment with your doctor. You'll miss your appointment, you know, with your husband to go have lunch that time or, or whatever, but you won't miss your appointment with death. It's not an idea of if you die, but when you die. So my words that I say just because of the tragedy and unfortunate, as I even prayed before service started, but life is short, and are you ready to meet your maker? Are you ready for your appointment with death to come today? For it is the most important question that everyone or anyone will ever have to answer 
ever. All right, on to our new sermon. Uh, message title, The Distribution of Duties. Acts 6, 1 through 7. If you're not there, I'm getting there right now. Acts 6, 1 through 7. In the light of tragedy, it's always good. You can always learn something. You can always learn something at any time, but especially in tragedy. As uh, we were just reading, or as we were just listening to our worship artist, right? She said, even in the darkness, I'm still learning. All right, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. You can follow along with me or just listen along. The Bible says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procronus and Nicander, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Okay, so today, brand new chapter. Brand new scene. We're now back in the temple. Remember, we left our last scene with them kind of rejoicing as they were going away from just getting beaten and being counted worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in our new scene. We're back in the temple. And our main topic of discussion, another problem that this early Christian church in Jerusalem, the first one that Jesus set up, by the way, after he rose. What is this problem? Look at verse 1 again. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, that tells us that the church was still growing, right? The number of disciples was still multiplying. People were still getting saved. Miracles were still being done. The apostles and disciples were still preaching the gospel and the church was still growing. Then there arose a complaint. Here's the problem against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Now Hellenists were Greek speaking Jews while the Hebrew, while the, while the apostles and the normal disciples would have been Jewish speaking Jews. They would have spoken Hebrew. Because, they say, the complaint, their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So as it was, the early church believed in feeding and taking care of its members, which is a good thing, right? If the church has the ability, it's a good work. God called us to do good works. Jesus said, always, you'll always have the poor among you. And so the widows, we know, usually widows, well, if they're needing help from the church, they're not going to be wealthy. So they're going to the church for food. They're going to the church for help. And this church was helping them doing the good, godly thing. And as they're taking care of their members and feeding them, the Greek-speaking Jewish members saw that their widows were being neglected in what was called the daily distribution, which was obviously a time in the day when all the, these people, the members of the church, would come and they'd get fed, and this is what the church was doing, and they'd receive the support of food and nourishment that the church could give them. And as the scripture just told us, the Greek-speaking Jewish members of the church came to come to the apostles, whom are the leaders of the whole entire church, and report that their widows are getting shorted or neglected, or they're not getting as much provision from the, you know, from the Jewish people that are giving out the provision as the Jewish-speaking widows were getting. 
I have a hard time believing this would happen, but, you know, the Bible, this is what the Bible says, considering what Luke writes in Acts 4.32 of this same church, where he writes, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of these things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So that's what it said in 4, yet now we're here in Acts chapter 6, and now we see a problem. Hey, we're holding back some goods, we're holding back some provisions from those that are there, but, you know, as it seems, maybe some racism had crept in. You know, as new people get saved, uh, the Bible says that people go through something called sanctification, which means that people don't become perfected like Jesus Christ right away. They go through a process. They get saved, and then they learn God's ways, and as they continue to learn God's ways, as my own self, you know, as I'm reading, as I'm learning, oh, I, oh, Lord, you, oh, you say I can't do that? Oh, Oh, Lord, that's hard. I got to stop doing that too. Oh, gosh, Lord, well, your word says it. Well, here, maybe some new Christians were kind of doing this thing and they, they had, well, you know, those are Greek speaking Jews, you know, so I'm just, I'm just saying, maybe it was racism. Maybe it was an oversight. Who knows? But, you know, maybe the Jewish speaking Jews that were giving out the distribution of food were looking down on the Greek speaking Jews because they didn't speak Hebrew. You know, again, I don't know for sure, but there was definitely a problem of neglect and it had to be fixed, of course, because that's not, you know, that's not God's plan. God doesn't say neglect. God says love. God says give. God says be generous, right? So what, why was this a problem in the first place? Well, I see this as a problem because there was no personal oversight of this particular ministry. In every church, you always have ministries. You have an outreach ministry, you have a food ministry, you have a donuts ministry, you have a coffee ministry, you have a, a welcoming new believers ministry. Whatever you've got, you always got ministries. Well, in every ministry, in my experience, in my you know, years of being a Christian, when I go to churches, there's always somebody that's always over this particular ministry, or maybe that's somebody that's over two or three ministries, but nevertheless, they're always looking in to those ministries. Hey, how, how are things going? Hey, what's going on? Oh, is that one running okay? Well, this ministry, particular ministry, had no personal oversight of somebody that was an experienced Christian that was, you know, that was looking over it. And this is a problem in churches. Churches already have a hard time getting people to serve. And when people do serve, it, you know, usually people are overworked and underpaid. Well, I mean, they're getting paid from God and from eternity, but they're not getting paid from the church. It's just volunteers. So you have a problem with oversight of ministry. There's not enough oversight ministry. There's not enough personal attention by an elder, by somebody who's wise in the Lord, who's been a Christian for a while, that kind of knows how things work, and they're not really there kind of overseeing, and that's what I see the problem was here. What do the apostles do with the complaint and the problem? Because after all, they were the leaders of the church. And so the leaders of the church, kind of like the boss at work, when you go to the boss at work, you say, hey, boss, I got this problem. What do I do with this problem? Well, the boss says, oh, you know, if he's a bad boss, he just says, well, go take care of it yourself. But if he's a good boss, he takes care of the problem. Look at verses two through four to see how the apostles handle the complaint and the problem. Then the twelve summon the multitude of the disciples, so they bring the issue. They don't just handle it themselves. They bring the issue and the complaint before the multitude of the disciples, or we'll say the board members, or we'll say the members of the whole church, as it is always wise, even though they were the leaders of the church as a whole, it's always wise to get everybody together and have a consultation and have a sit down and talk about the problem and air out the problem, right? We don't want to keep the problem hidden. That's the devil. The devil likes darkness, right? The devil likes to hide things. But in God's kingdom, for God, it's good to make things aired, let everything out, get things in the open, right? Talk about things. What do they do? They said, 
It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Hey, guys and gals, we have an obligation from God Almighty and Jesus Christ to lead this whole church, to lead it, to teach the people, to disciple the people, to train the masses of new believers, to get people into God's word, to get them, you know, going in God's word. So here's our solution, I'll say, verse 3. Therefore, brethren... Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So give us your recommendation, they say. We're not going we're gonna stay out of it, right? We're we're leading. We're gonna give you some responsibility, some some distribution of duties. I want you to recommend to us seven people, seven men in specific, that are above the bar. Seven men that are godly men, men on fire. For Jesus Christ, men of God, strong men of God, not young Christians, you say, but strong men of God, whom we may give the important oversight of this ministry to. For I'll add, in the bigger picture for every church, every ministry is as important as every other ministry. Because you see, you can't have, if you have a pastor and you have elders, well, who are they leading? Who are they pastoring? If they don't have a flock, well, then they're not really a pastor. And if they don't have elders, then they don't really have a, a, a board, of, a, you know, a, a board of leaders. So you, every ministry kind of complements every other ministry. You can't say one ministry is greater than any other. But verse four: For as we are concerned, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. But they say we will not do those things. We're not going to do that. We're going to give ourselves completely and totally to continuing to fulfill the calling that God has given us specifically as the 12 apostles that Jesus Christ has appointed because there were only 12 of them. So what do they do with the problem of no personal insight? They suggest a fix. What's their fix? <laughs> Put some personal oversight over the ministry, some really strong Christian men of the daily distribution so that they could fulfill their specific calling from God because obviously they can't be involved in every single ministry in the church, right? Not, not, no one person can be involved in every single ministry in every single church. Were the apostles saying that they were somehow above the duties of, of serving the widow's tables as, they were, as to say they were better than the act of the service uh, to their congregation? Absolutely not. That's not what they said either. They simply tell the, the, these board of members, these members of the church, that their 100% duty calling and gifting from God was to lead, preach, pray, and disciple this great church as a whole and, and nothing else because, of course, that has great responsibility to it too, to just oversee and to lead and to teach and the amount of time it takes to do all that, right? And nothing else because obviously, I'm going to say this a few times uh, as I keep going here, one or two or even a few people cannot do everything for all, especially the masses. This church at the time, by doing our math from other chapters, this church at this time had around 10,000, maybe 11,000 members. And these are 12 guys trying to lead a church of like over 10,000 people. And that's a lot. Uh, in other words, what they recommend, they recommend balance. As a brother of mine always says, they recommend some balance. Uh, there is a reason by the Bible calls Christians the body of Christ. After all, you know, right? And what does the body do? The body works together. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the Christian church has had a problem for the, for the longest time. They had a problem here. It still has a problem to this day. You know what that problem is? 10% of the people do 100% of the work for 100% of the people. It's just, it's just sad. Not a lot of people 
you know, step up and do the work that God's called them to do. A lot of people just go to church just to get fed and they don't serve. So again, 10% of the people are serving 100% of the people and doing 90% of the work. That's just, that's just how it works. And that's a big problem in this church. So what do the apostles do? They suggest this fix and they put in motion exactly what Paul explains to God's children in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, starting in verse 4. Look what Paul says in verse, uh, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. You are, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Which means that there's lots of different gifts from, that, are, that God puts in His people, in His body, body of Christ, but the same Holy Spirit. There's one Spirit, but all people have kind of different gifts. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities, uh, diversities of activities. But it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Let's just talk about that there for a moment. He just said that everybody has different gifts for God's body. And those gifts are meant to profit all the people, right? And, and then he said that every single true Christian has these gifts from God, not just one or not just two, but all. And the prophet wasn't just for, you know, one or two, but the prophet, everybody has something that profits somebody else. Verse eight, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, to another, the word of knowledge through the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues, but to one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Four, here's what really they're saying here. Now that he basically laid down, hey guys, everybody has a gift. Everybody has a gift that's supposed to be used for the whole body. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. There and there's where he's getting to, where everybody has a certain service and a certain purpose in God's body, in the body of Christ. And this is what Paul is saying here. Hey, our purpose for this body of Christ is to do this. But hey, we need other people who are called by God to step up and exercise their gifts, the ones that God called them to have. And he goes on to kind of break it down. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Well, we know the answer to be no, it's still part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, well, we know it's, that's not possible because it is. Uh, is it therefore not of the body? Of course, it's still of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing, or where would be the hearing? If the whole uh, were hearing, where would the smell, where would be the smelling? But now, God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? It's a good question. Got to have a body. Wouldn't have a body if it was just one eye. Wouldn't be the body of an eye. All it would be would be the seeing, right? You can't have a body without feet and legs and ears and arms and toes and, you know, noses and all that good stuff. But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. 
nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. No, no much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, we see to bestow greater honor. Like Kind of like your feet, right? What well, We kind of cover the feet with the shoes and all that good stuff, right? But what, what would happen if we didn't have feet? How would we walk around on our ankles very well? We wouldn't. We wouldn't at all, right? But yet, we seem to say those are the least of the members of our body, yet if we didn't have our feet, boy, we'd be in big trouble. Route. So, verse 24, but our presentable parts have no need, but God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body. Hey, let the body work together. This is what the apostles are saying here. Let the body work together, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all members suffer. And I'll say this, if one member's lazy, well, that puts more burden on the other members of the church. And in this case, the members weren't stepping up and doing their due diligence to do what God called them to do. So it was causing the apostles to have to suffer away from their studies, right? They couldn't study the word of God. They were being pulled away to handle this complaint, which shouldn't have been one to begin with. But it, and if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. When everybody's doing what they're supposed to do, Everybody's blessed by it. Absolutely. Now you, Paul says, are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. Listen, everybody has a duty. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles, gifts of healings, help, uh, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Uh, and then he goes on. It basically, he says there, everybody has something to do. There's something for everybody to do. Everybody has a gift. Are you using it? But he goes on, are all teachers? Well, we know, uh, no. Are all apostles? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? Well, we know not everybody can do everything, right? This is what the apostles do here in Acts chapter 6. We can't do everything. We need some people to do this ministry for this thing because we can't do this. But earnestly says, desire the best gifts and I will show you a more excellent way. So I can't drive this home more. It, it's the distribution of duties is what the apostles are really pointing to here. Now, whether Paul gleaned these ideas from the apostles here in Acts 6 or God gave them to him personally, I don't know. But this I know for sure. God is absolutely the author of the distribution of duties. And that's hence why the title of the sermon is the way it is. Because in both these sections, God's in both these sections, excuse me, God teaches all of the spiritual children this concept. And nowhere in God's word do we ever read that God wants one, two, or a few to do the work for the all, right? Uh, just even please think of those concepts that Paul just gave us that we can look at in our body. Just look at it from this perspective, something that God gave us. Does your hand live for your whole body? No. Does your hand do everything for your whole body? No, it doesn't walk. It doesn't think, right? Does your foot do everything for your body? No, your foot can't clean your body. Your foot can't cook for your body. Now, there are certain people that are handicapped that are only have feet and they, their feet, God's given them the ability to do supernatural things with their feet, but th their feet still don't do everything for them for their feet can't even breathe for them. Your lungs have to breathe for them. So in nowhere, even in our own bodies, do we see that one part of the body, the hand, has to do everything for the whole body. Even in our bodies, the distribution of duties is seen. 
This concept of the distribution of duties even goes all the way back to Moses and the good godly advice of his father-in-law Jethro in uh, Exodus 18, 13 to 26. Listen to what he says here. And so it was on that next day that Moses sat to judge the people. Now Moses was the leader of the children of Israel. And so he sat to judge the people. The people would come to him and you know it says here, and the people stood before Moses morning until evening so that basically if they had problems, every little problem or big problem they had, they would all come to Moses and say, hey Moses, hey what do we do about this? Oh, hey Moses, what do we do about Hey Moses, you know, so and so tripped over my dog and hurt my dog the other day. And uh, you know, what, what, what kind of, what should we do about that? And hey Moses, Moses, uh, so and so here accidentally uh, killed my uh, killed my cow. And what do we do? So and, and now there were over a million Jews and and one Moses, right? And that's why it says the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, "What is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you why do you sit alone and all the people stand before you until morning until evening?" And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. You know, hey, what would God have me do in this situation? Well, when they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God's and his uh, the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, "The thing that you do is not good." Wow. Now Jethro wasn't even a worshiper of the God of the Bible, and, and he kind of saw that. And this wasn't even advice from God, even though it was God's advice in the New Testament here. Uh, it's not good when they have a difficulty. Excuse me, I'm sorry, I lost my place. So when Moses' father-in-law said, the thing you do is not good, both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God, and you shall teach them the statutes and laws, and show them the way in which they shall walk and work the things they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, distribution of duties, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place over such to be rulers of the thousands, rulers of the hundreds, rulers of the fifties, and rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, so they will bear their burden with you. Distribution of duties. For if you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all this people will also be able to go to their places in peace. So what he said was, if you don't do this, think of millions of, that would be like, probably there was actually probably two or three million Jews and one guy. So think of two or three million Jews and maybe just even a tenth of them having a problem that they had to come to Moses for. Well, that's a, I, I'm not good at math, but that's a lot of people, and there were still only 24 hours in one day. So uh, the people wouldn't have been in peace. Moses would have gotten wore out within weeks, I could see, or less. And so Jethro's advice was good. And what did Moses do? Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law, did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel. Now, isn't it sounding exactly what like what the apostles said to do here? Hey, don't just get just, just the young Christians. Get the wise, good, God, godly, and strong men, and hey, bring them in and have them do this work so that they, you know the relief is off of you. And so this is exactly what Moses does here. He, he selects good men, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, and hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. This is exactly a picture of what's going on in the New Testament here in the book, in, the, in this Jerusalem church right here, like thousands of years before these guys lived. 
God shows us the last example I give you is throughout the whole literal Old Testament that Jethro's advice was good in his eyes by the way he set up the service to him for his tabernacle, the service to him for his temple, right? God just didn't say, oh, just one guy does it all. Moses, he's just going to run everything. No, 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 no. God had specific people that he called to carry things. He had specific people that he called to sing to worship the Lord, to play instruments to worship the Lord. Uh, priests had to do certain things for God, like make certain sacrifices. And sir, only one only one of the high priests could go into the inner temper or the inner court and make supplication and, and go into the Holy of Holies. And so everybody had a different dictation of duties. There was always a distribution of duties where the, the, the masses really served the masses. It wasn't just the one, two, or few, but it was the masses that served the masses. But the fact of the matter is this, whether in the Old Testament or New Testament, one, two, or even a few were never meant to serve the all. Everybody that's ever been a true child of God has always had a role to play for God Almighty and is working on earth with mankind. And that's all the apostles are telling the board members and the members of the church here in Acts 6. Hey guys, Let's distribute the workload so that we can do our jobs and these guys can do this job and these guys can do this job and these guys can do this job so that one person is not doing the work of the all. Were the board members and the members of this church accepting of the apostles' proposal, recognizing as it was from God? Look at verses 5 and 6. And the saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose Stephen and Philip and Pro. Cornus and Nicor and uh, Timon and I'm terrible with Jewish names and Parmenius and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them basically. And they started serving the people and given the personal oversight to, that the ministry needed that God was wanting, right? Thankfully, the leaders and members of this early church in Jerusalem were led by God, His Holy Spirit, and they approve the good, uh, godly proposal of the apostles. God helped them to see that their proposal of the distribution of duties was really from Him. And it was, as a result, praise be to God, the ministry of the daily distribution received seven good, strong, probably young, I'm guessing, because there were, like, you know, what a 10,000, 11,000, 12,000 member church, I'm guessing that the widows were uh, quite a Quite a quite a lot. I'm guessing it wasn't just five or ten widows. I'm guessing it was probably hundreds of widows. So seven men weren't going to be able to serve hundreds. So they probably were, you know, these young men, able-bodied, you know, young and strong, not not old and feeble, godly men to oversee it, so that the ministry would be ran like God wanted it to be run, fairly and honestly. Proverbs 11:1. 1. Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. In Proverbs 16:11. Honest weights and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are His work. So you see, the way they were doing it was like dishonest scales, right? They were shorting some and giving some to many, you know, or giving more to some. And that's not what God wanted, right? God loves righteousness and he wants his kids to live in righteousness and righteousness is distributing to everyone even the greek-speaking jewish widows fairly and not shorting them right that's what righteousness is that's one way of righteousness as a result of this righteous principle of god being practiced by these apostles board members that they surrender to as a church look at our last verse verse 7 look at what scripture tells us was the outcome then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. When God's kids do the things that God wants them to do in God's ways, blessings come. 
Simple as that. These blessings that come from God for our obedience are not always the adding of tens, hundreds, and thousands of members to the church or, or great, great, great financial gain, but they are blessings and there are many that come from God if we do the things he wants us to do in his ways. See, we could serve God our way or we could serve God his way. And of course, the Bible says that if you really love God, you serve God his way. And these Christians do things God's way and the church continues to grow. Blessings are continued to pour out on the church. First Samuel 15, 22, uh, Samuel says this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You see, there's nothing greater in God's eyes than when you obey his word, which his word is what he says. It's like his voice. So Christians, words to the wise from God concerning our scripture t- topic today. Get busy asking God to let you serve him in his church, for you can't call yourself into ministry. We covered that last week. You just can't. It's God who calls everybody, right? But we can be ready and we can be preparing ourselves and we can be asking God for the honor of letting him serve him, right? Letting us serve him because just serving God is no minor thing. Oh, I'll just go serve God today and tomorrow. No, no, no. Serving the great king of the universe is an honor. And we ought to ask God if we could serve him when he wants us to, but we should still ask him. And we need to ask him where he wants us to serve him in his church because he definitely wants us to serve him in his church. Children's ministry, ushering, greeting, coffee and donuts, welcoming new members ministry, you name it. There's all kinds, really, really all kinds. And if you ask the church you should be involved in, unless you are in the process of actively seeking where God wants you to go to church by praying, asking, and visiting some local churches to see where God wants to put you. But if you just ask them, just go into your, your church next time or the one you, hey, uh, are you guys needing some, some volunteer help? Well, they might fall down because every church is needing servants. Every church, because again, the problem 10% are doing 90% of the work, and then, oh yeah, what do you want? What, what are you good at? They'll, they'll get out their pen, piece, paper, and they'll, they'll be like, oh, let's, let's go. Well, let, let's talk. How long have you been visiting? How long have you been coming here? And they'll start to get all kinds of things on you. They'll run you through the, the, the gauntlet, and they'll get, they'll get you ready to serve because they need servants. Um, did you know that God demands, actually, his kids to be obedient to his commands and the way he's called us to live after we become his spiritual children. That, that's not a very popular idea and a popular thought today, uh, but there's no way around it. The Bible says God demands his kids do something for him once they become his children. Now, like, if you're unsaved and you become to be a Christian, then God says, okay, here's your list of duties. It's kind of like if you have, you know, if you don't have a job, well, you don't have any duties for that job, but if you get hired on that job, they don't just let you go sit in the break room. Oh, oh, well, when you're done sitting in the break room there, Larry, uh, hey, come on out and, you know, if you feel like it, we'll, we'll, we'll give you some duties. No, that's not quite how a job works, right? When you get hired on a job, they give <laughs> okay, okay, Mary, okay, Larry, here's your list of duties that you're supposed to do. Well, God in like, when you get hired for his kingdom, when you become saved, God has things for you to do. And serving in his church is one of those things, along with other things, along with this idea. Look what God says, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, but as he who has called you is holy, it's a command, you also be holy in all your conduct. It's not God saying, well, you know, I'm going to make you holy in everything you do when you come to me. No, 
God makes us holy and pure in his sight when we get saved, but he does, that doesn't mean that all of our ways then are perfected. So there's a command from God, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, Be holy, for I am holy in all your conduct, because it is written, again, a command, Be holy, for I am holy. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, First, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, least anyone should boast, but we are his workmanship, listen, created in Christ Jesus, for sitting in the break room having a cigarette. Oh, I'm sorry. That's, that's not what the scripture says at all. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Look at that. For good works. Which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. It didn't say that we will walk in them, right? It said we should walk in them. Notice that little word there. Should means that it's our responsibility Right? It's our responsibility to be ready and to be able. Hey, God, I'm ready to serve you. Hey, use me. I want to walk in these works that you've given me. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. I mean, everybody knows this one, right? This is a command, though. This is not a suggestion. Jesus said to his disciples, and against hence all Christians for the end of time, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Well, that's a command. Well, you know, if you feel like it once in a while, maybe you might strike up a conversation with Jesus. Or, no, go, Therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you to do. And then the biggest one, the biggest, the biggest whopper I saved for last. First Thessalonians 4, 1 through 7. Just listen to what the way God says these, these this little couple of paragraphs here to his apostles, disciples, all of us that are his to the end of time. Finally, then, brethren. We urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. Well, that's not something that's an automatic thing to do, right? If he's urging us and exhorting us, something that you should do, that's not meant that we're just going to automatically do it. And he says that you should, again, it's ours, up to us, abound more and more, just as you have received from us, how you ought to walk and to please God. Kind of lines up with 1 Peter, right? Be holy for I am holy in all your conduct. See, this is something that you should be doing as a Christian, that you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments that you have been given through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should, not that you will, that you should, it's our choice, abstain from sexual morality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust, you know, denying your lust, denying the sinful things that your flesh wants to do. Like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this matter. See, so that's another command. There's all kinds of commands. God says, here's the things you got to do. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned to you and testified. For God did not call you to uncleanness, but in holiness. So there, God's calling to us is not that we absolutely will, we have a choice in the matter as we'll, whether when we come to him, whether we'll fully obey him or partially obey him or not obey him at all. Not all those matter on your eternal life, but that's what the word of God says. All these scriptures and more speak to us just exactly of what type of life of service to God and holiness to God that we or that he demands of people after they become his spiritual children. Not what type of life God will make people live after they are saved. And it's the Bible. It's not just me. It's don't so don't 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 call it legalism and don't say, oh, Pastor Ed. No, no, no. It's the Bible. And the reason I say that, I, I kind of just just roll off into us a, a, just a sad idea that people have thought up today, a, a very sad and dangerous doctrine called hypergrace. 
This is an attitude as such. It doesn't matter if I serve God or if I live a holy life of God. I don't have any, there's no need of repentance. I'm saved. I got saved. I'm born again. Hey, it's all about God's grace. And if he wants me to do something and live certain ways, well, you know, he'll just move in my heart and he'll do. Because, you know, I don't have any responsibility. I got saved, right? That's the whole idea behind the dangerous doctrine of hypergrace. But I don't read anywhere in scriptures, nor the ones that I just read, that after someone becomes a spiritual child of God, God doesn't care about how they, or if they have repentance or how much sins in their lives, nor does he require them not to serve him, as the scripture says, you know, as the work analogy that I give. Oh yeah, just get hired and go sit in the break room. It's fine. We'll just pay anyway. Uh, I just don't read anywhere. I see that hypergrace is a false and wicked doctrine for sure. Christians, God made you to serve him to abstain from every form of evil and unholiness, and he demands that you strive to live the ways he's recorded all of us to live in his word. And if you don't believe me, one last one, one last one right from the words of Jesus, right from the mouth of Jesus, where he tells us how to get saved, and then he tells us what the progression should be even after salvation, Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. He says this, if anyone desires to come after me, so that's the point when they believe in Jesus, right? You're not going to want to come after somebody if you don't believe in him, right? The Bible says you got to believe, right? But that's just step one. So it, those who desire to come after me, they believe in him, uh, that he's Savior, let him deny himself. Let him deny. Well, wait a minute. I thought, don't most preachers just preach? If you just believe in Jesus, then you'll be saved, right? Well, what did you say? If anyone, well, after you believe in me, let him deny himself. Well, what does that mean? That, that sounds like something that it's a step that we have to take after we believe. Well, this is your step of faith that comes next. This, this comes, this is right after belief. Belief is kind of of the head. Faith kind of goes to the heart. This self-denial means that you come to Christ in repentance, it means that you don't just believe in him, but you come in repentance. This repentance is a surrender of your life to Jesus Christ as Lord. Not just as a belief, right? Because the scripture says that everybody has lots of beliefs, and even the demons believe in God and Jesus Christ, and they tremble. But it's, it's, we all know the devil and the fallen angels, well, they're not saved. They're not going to go to heaven when they die. So this is, this is a step of repentance unto a surrender of your life. This is where a point where somebody comes to be born again. This is the point where somebody says, I can't live this life on my own anymore. Jesus, I need you. Please, live within me, God. I need you to lead my life. I don't want to live my life for me anymore. I'm, I'm living a life of destruction. So this is that. Let him deny himself. And at that point, someone becomes born again. They become from just somebody who believes to somebody who becomes born again. So now that we're saved, does Jesus stop there? Oh, well, now that you're saved, just God's all right. Go sit on the couch and have yourself a nice sweet tea. No, he doesn't say. He doesn't finish that way. He goes this. He says this. And then after you're saved, take up your cross. Well, what does the cross signify? What did the cross signify? Well, the cross <laughs> signified the crucifying of the flesh. Now, what does it mean to crucify my flesh? After I, after I come to get saved, i got to die like Jesus wants me to go to the cross and, and, and die like Jesus did in six hours? No, no, no. Galatians 5.24. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And... Luke 9, 23 of this same section of scripture, 
Jesus adds in that and take up his cross daily, which means Jesus saying that this is a daily thing. God expects his children, once you're saved, then to live a holy life, to find out the things that God says I hate in Scripture, lewdness and profanity and vulgarness and, and, and having false gods before him and serving false gods and, and pornography and, and fornication and adultery. And don't do those things. Stop doing those things. Many people think, well, I can stop doing all these things and live a good, righteous life, and then I'll be saved. But that's not actually the way Jesus put it here. He said, anybody desires to come after me, which is belief that I'm denying stuff, which is the total emptying of stuff. Hey, God, I'm yours. I need that. There's no work there. It's just surrender. There's no, and then look, the works now come after the salvation. Now, after you're saved, hey, find out the things that I hate and don't live those ways anymore. This is what God expects from someone that's his children, denying themselves daily or picking up their crosses daily and ignoring and rejecting the ways that your flesh wants to live. Because we know the Bible says you can either sow to the spirit or you can sow to the flesh. It's a choice. It's our choice. After we become saved, it's our choice. God doesn't make us, but he surely wants us to because those that don't aren't going to go to heaven. But anyway, lastly, Jesus says of his new children, then after the fact, after they've come to be his, after they've, they've, they're focusing on a life of holiness now, he says then, simply, follow me. What does that mean? Well, finishing up, Jesus expects now that we, as his children, would look at the teachings about him, look at his lifestyle, and then follow his pattern of life. 1 John 2.6 says the same thing. He who, he who says he abides in him, Jesus Christ, ought to himself also walk just as he, Jesus, walked. So living a lifestyle of the life of Christ, the ways that Christ lived. What ways did Christ live? Well, he was open about his faith. He was open about his love. He was open about his help. He helped people. He did miracles. And all these things Jesus says that we can do if we're his as well too. And then just for clarification, in case people, anybody missed it, in case anybody missed the most important step, because the works will come, right, after you're saved, God will put those works in you, and then you're supposed to obey them. And that's the whole sanctification process and obeying the holiness and obeying the works and all that stuff. But in case we miss the most important part of the salvation, he, he kind of reiterates it for us in the very last verse of this section. Forever desires to save his life, We'll lose it. Well, do you love your life now? If you love your life now, then you're going to save your life now, but you'll lose it in eternity. He says he ends up, for whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, if we lose our life in him, once we surrender, we lose the control that we have over this life, but we get an eternal life. We get the life he offers to those who do that. So please... Come on, Christians, your life in Christ is not all and only about God's grace, apart from repentance, and you do have responsibilities to live for Him in certain ways and do certain things. It's a partnership, really. Salvation and walking with God is a partnership, the same as a husband and wife. Husband has duties, wife has duties, but you have to love one another and you have to have a good relationship and communication is key and, and you know, compromise is key in a relationship. Well, so is it with Jesus Christ. And, and this begins at the point you come to surrender or losing your life for Jesus Christ's sake, and it goes all the way to the end, all the way till you die. Uh, so if you're really his, 
Christians, listen please, live like you love Him and serve Jesus Christ and obey Jesus Christ like you love Him, the ways in which He's given you in His Word to live. And for goodness sake, share some of the duties that God has given for His church. Because that should be our number one, after our families, church should be our number one ministry, taking care of God's church, serving God in His church. If you're not His, so never surrendered to Him in the first place or backslidden away from this surrender, then give it all to Him now. Fall on your face, fall on your knees, and surrender to Jesus Christ now, or give it back to Him. You see, because if you're not surrendered, if you're not born again, if you're not truly in God's kingdom, then you're not going to go to heaven when you die. And God's word says he desires none to perish, but all to come to repentance. Repentance that leads unto life. The repentance of the surrender of your life to Jesus Christ. So I don't know where you're at, but God knows where you're at. And I'm going to pray for you now as I close. And... uh, I just pray that God gets you where He wants you, whether working for Him diligently or, or even coming to be His so that you can work for Him. So, Lord, we just thank You so much for Your Word today. Lord, thank You so much that we have Your Word. For, Lord, You, you just didn't come down to earth and say a few good things and then leave and then just say, oh, well, you know, if people just do their best, they'll be all right. No, Lord, You, you came down and you, you communicated Your Word and Your will and Your desires and and the things that you want and, and how to give man salvation, Lord, you communicated them to, to, to 12 people. Unfortunately, one killed himself and he was a betrayer, but you communicated them to 11. As well as then that 11 communicated to them to hundreds and thousands of other people, Lord God, so that we now have your word, Lord. Then they wrote it down, Lord God, which is your will and which is your desires, Lord, which is what you want. It's, your, it's, it's, it's like you spoke to them and then they just wrote it down directly. So, Lord, I, I just pray. God, that you would help us, Lord, not just to hear your word, but to be doers of your word as well too, Lord God. Because, Lord, those that just hear something and go off and do nothing, Lord, even in man's world, there's, there's three ways in which you really understand things. And everybody, that's just people, Lord, and you know this. We read it, we write it, and we teach it. See, there's, there's, you can't just hear it. When you just hear something, you're not going to generally remember it. But if you hear it or you read it and then you write it down and then you teach it, then we're really going to remember it, Lord. And with your word, we can hear it and maybe we're writing it down. Maybe I'm going to start doing that. But Lord, if we're not writing it down, we can practice it. Lord, hear it or read it and then practice it, Lord God. And then that's where the blessings come. That's where eternal life comes. Not that we just hear your words. It's like that Christmas present under the tree to start, Lord. When, when we start before we're saved, you've got that beautiful Christmas tree under the, under the tree for us, the Christmas present under the tree, Lord. And, and when we could just see that Christmas present there and just leave it there. Well, then, I mean, it's ours, but we never received it, so we don't get the benefit of it, Lord. And it's the same thing with like even coming to be yours in the first place. We see that gift under there, Lord. We got to go and we got to take it. We got to receive it. And then it becomes ours. And then the benefit of it is ours, Lord. And then, of course, with this particular gift, Lord, comes, then now we're hired. We're hired to be servants for your kingdom. And Lord, I just pray for the servants out there. Lord, your servants out there, Lord God, I pray that they would get busy serving you for your kingdom. Lord God, for we were created to love and then serve you, Lord God. And that's it. That's why we were created. So I pray, Lord God, that the Christians listening to this message, Lord, would love you by their service to you, Lord. 
We thank you and we love you and we praise you. And I ask all these things and we pray all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name.